Uh, I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another session. Um, before he was my boss, the next speaker was my pastor. And I remember one night we were playing basketball at the uh, gym at Sacramento Adventist Academy, and I had the grave misfortune of locking my keys in my car. You ever done that? Well, I made the mistake once of asking a police officer to help me out. It took him like a half hour to get me into my car. But then the next speaker, when I asked him, he goes, I have some experience breaking into cars. <laughs> and it only took him five minutes. I'd like to uh, welcome Doug Batchelor to come speak for us. <laughs> I've never been introduced like that before. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. I, I do appreciate it. You know, along that line, we, uh, we had a gentleman at our church. It was a, just a, a, a neat story. Man had had a rough life. We saw this fellow come into church. He was just as, as wide as the side of a barn, all muscle, shaved head, tattoo from bow to stern. And, we were, and then he sat right up front. And, you know, when you have visitors at church that come down to the front, you don't know if they want to make a, an announcement or what they're going to do. And it uh, turned out to just have the most wonderful testimony. He had been through prison and gangs and drugs, and he found the Lord. Remarkable testimony. Uh, he died a couple of years later from heart failure. But I remember one day, shortly after he became a member and started coming to Central Church, he said, I locked my keys out of the car. And someone said, our pastor can help you. <laughs> and talk about uh, the irony of me in my suit helping this guy from prison <laughs> get into his car. <laughs> so we had a great friendship after that. Oops, sorry. Um, I have limited time and a lot I want to share with you. And um, I, I want to talk to you. This is different from my getting up and maybe just sharing an inspirational message or a sermon. I want to talk to you a little bit about why the Bible is precious to me and how I study the Bible. And hopefully you can glean uh, some, some of the edges of the field from what I share for yourself. Um, first of all, just to boil things down, let's assume that you have realized somewhere along the way that you're here. I don't know how old you were when you first realized that you were. Uh, you became aware that you exist. But then somewhere not long after that, you'll start wondering, why am I here? And the secret to happiness in life is you need to answer three very important questions. Oh, I want to welcome Mrs. Bachelor. Where are you sitting at, Karen? Tomorrow's her birthday. Uh, so, I just, uh, we're so glad that we could spend this afternoon together. We flew over from home and the boys are with grandma and other, another other places and we're just having fun together so we're spending army with you anyway three big questions you need to answer where did I come from what am I doing here and where am I going if you can't answer those questions then I don't know how you can be happy or have any security or peace I ultimately after 17 18 years of trying everything I could figure out 
came to believe that the answer to those questions are in the Bible. And I fell in love with the Bible. And my first allegiance is to the scriptures. The Bible changed my life. I became convinced that it is the map with the purpose of life, that God has communicated to humanity his perfect will in this incredibly blessed, protected, inspired book. It is unlike any other book. And there's a lot of good books out there, but the Bible is apart and above and beyond any other book. It is sacred. It is holy. It's the Word of God. Christ came from the Father. God became a man to communicate who He was to us. And the Bible says, God became the Word. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, how do you get Christ in you? It's all through the Word. The Bible's everything. The reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist is not because I'd ever even heard of this church before. I mean, I had a Jewish mother and an ex-Baptist father and went to Catholic school. I'd never heard of Seventh-day Adventists. But when I read the Bible and found all the divisions among Christians, uh, I visited many different churches and worshiped with charismatics and evangelicals and a lot of good Christian people that love the word, but they just, something was off. And I prayed and said, Lord, I believe the Bible is the truth. I want to know what the truth is. And ultimately, some of you heard the testimony. I I found the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I also read the Spirit of Prophecy, and I said, boy, this is right lining up with the Bible. And, but it's the Bible. It's the reason that I became a Seventh-day Adventist. And then what really became exciting to me is when I came to realize that the whole Bible is about Jesus, not just the New Testament. I remember worshiping with my friends from uh, some of the charismatic churches, and I'd ask them questions as I read through the Old Testament like about the Sabbath. And they'd say, well, that's the Old Covenant. And I said, well, isn't this the Bible Jesus read? I mean, there was no New Testament. And 10% of everything Jesus said, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And if anything, one of the great diseases that modern Christians suffer from is an ignorance of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the foundation on which the whole New Testament rests. And it all talks about Jesus. You do not first learn about Jesus in the New Testament. You find out about Jesus in Genesis. And if there's one central theme that the Old Testament, uh, or the New Testament writers tell us, is that you see Christ in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to read a little bit to you, and so I want you to stay with me, because uh, I, I normally don't read so many notes when I preach. But uh, I want to share a few things with you. I'm going to start with, a. this is from the book, That I Might Know Him, page 208. And it, she begins by quoting the reference in Luke chapter 24, where the two are on the road to Emmaus, and they don't know Jesus is with them. And they hear, Jesus hears them complaining about, we thought Christ was the Messiah, but he died, and now his body's missing, and we don't know what to do. And, and Jesus said, what is this sad communication that you have with each other? And finally he says, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures. How much Bible was in existence when Jesus did this? Just the Old Testament. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
All the scriptures talk about Jesus. After Philip found Nathanael, John 1 verse 45, he said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about Jesus. And even Jesus said, John 5 verse 39 and 40, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. The Old Testament, there was no New Testament when he said that, testifies of Jesus. And so the central thing I want to share with you is that as I read the Bible, New and Old Testament, I look for Jesus. And I see him everywhere. And it's not just Christ, I see pictures of Christ through all the Old Testament heroes. I see it also in the New Testament. But I see the gospel in the stories. Now to me, it is one of the greatest signs that God is God, that he is sovereign, in that somebody could live their life and then finally be buried away. And you can look at their life and it was an inspired Bible character and you can see the gospel portrayed in what was recorded about their life and they may not have ever known they were living out types of the gospel in their life. Only God can orchestrate something like that. I want to share a little amazing fact with you. Maybe you've heard this. I shared it on the radio program. It's called The Wreck of the Titan. On April 14, 1912, the huge ship Titanic was steaming across the Atlantic towards New York, and it was deemed to be the unsinkable ship. Now, right now, uh, April was the 100-year anniversary of that event. On its maiden voyage, the captain was encouraged to break the record for speed while making the crossing. As most people know, after striking an iceberg, the unsinkable ship went down in only a matter of a couple of hours. Out of 2,200 people, only 711 were saved. Since then, there have been many books and movies and stories about the Titanic. But there is one fictional story, a fictional story written by a merchant seaman by the name of Morgan Robinson. Listen carefully. Robinson's book was about an unsinkable passenger liner that sank while carrying an elite group of people of the time. The ship in Robinson's story was called the Titan. And in the book that was titled The Wreck of the Titan, even though the book is fictitious, events in the story have an amazing parallel to the events of the Titanic. Here's a few of the comparisons. In the book written by Robertson called The, Titan, uh, the uh, Wreck of the Titan, you got one called The Titan, one called The Titanic. The Titan is 800 feet long. Titanic is 882 feet. The width of the Titan, 90 feet. Titanic, 92 feet. The top speed of the Titan was 25 knots. Titanic, 23 knots. The watertight compartments in the Titan were 19. The Titanic had 16. Propeller, three on both ships, which was unheard of in the day. Capacity of the Titan, 3,000. Capacity of the Titanic, 3,250. Of the people on board, there were 2,000. The Titanic, of course, 2,200. They only had 24 boats, though, a problem on the Titan. They only had 20 boats on the Titanic. Now, in sailing of the Titan, they were going from New York to England. The Titanic was going from England to New York. Both ships were advertised as being unsinkable. 
Both ships were encouraged to break speed records during their voyage. Both ships sank after striking a pyramid-shaped iceberg that had just turned over. Both ships were on their maiden voyage. Most of the well-to-do people were on the Titan and the Titanic. Only one-third of the passengers on each ship survived. Both ships had inadequate number of lifeboats. Now, the interesting thing was Robertson's book, Wreck of the Titan, was never published. Each time the editors rejected his book and said that it was too unbelievable to ever occur. The interesting thing was, The Wreck of the Titan was written in 1898. Of course, the Titanic sank in April 1912. What are the chances of there being that many similarities? Almost makes you wonder if that seaman was given that somehow prophetically. If it's a coincidence, it is a very amazing coincidence. But I wonder sometimes if God gives people certain insights to try and catch our attention and help us realize there must be a God or these things couldn't happen. When you read through the stories of the characters in the Bible, there are too many coincidences between their lives and events in their lives and the life of Jesus to think that it's a coincidence. And the Bible tells us that we should read uh, the, or the spirit of prophecy in the Bible tells us we should read the scriptures looking for Christ in these things. Even Jesus said it. Now, I gave you a quote from uh, Ellen White, and I never read it. One more time. That I might know him, page 208. There is one great central truth that is to be kept ever before the mind in searching the scriptures. What is that central truth? Christ and him crucified. Every other truth is invested with its influence and power corresponding to its relation with this theme. It is only in the light of the cross that we can discern the exalted character of the law of God. The soul palsied by sin can be endowed with life only through the work wrought out upon the cross by the author of our salvation. The love of Christ constrains man to unite with him in his labors and his sacrifice. The revelation of divine love awakens in them a sense of their neglected obligation to be light bearers to the world and inspires them with a missionary spirit. The truth enlightens the mind and sanctifies the soul. It will banish unbelief and inspire faith. When Christ and his work of redemption is seen to be the great central truth in the system of truth, a new light is shed upon all the events of the past and the future. They are seen in a new relation and possess a new, deeper significance. The Old Testament, notice, is as verily the gospel, the Old Testament, Ellen White tells us, is as verily the gospel in types and shadows as the New Testament is in its unfolding power. You don't just read the New Testament to find the gospel. In the types and the shadows you see in the Old Testament, the gospel is there. And that's how it should be read. I'll give you some examples in a moment. The New Testament does not present a new religion. How many times when I was worshiping with my charismatic friends, and I still have a lot of friends that are non-Adventist Christians I study with. a matter of fact, uh, just flying over, I was talking to Karen. Uh, I'm slated to have a meeting with the president of the National Religious Broadcasters Convention and another president of another ministry I'll not name because the other ministry has wondered if Seventh-day Adventists are a cult and if we should be allowed to be part of the religious broadcasters. Now, there's nothing in our core belief that goes against what the broadcasters believe. I and mean, the broadcasters have Jews and everybody that are part of that. 
And so we're trying to schedule a meeting, and I hope you'll pray for that. Uh, you know, we've had the president come and visit with us at the office, and uh, great opportunities have been there to witness. By the way, a lot of these leaders of other churches watch Amazing Facts. Let me tell you something. I, wasn't, I totally didn't even think about this. It just came to me, but I, I'll mention this here. Karen's with me. One of the ministry leaders, have any of you, be honest, have you ever heard of uh, Dr. David Jeremiah and his program called Turning Point? Let me see your hands. Okay. Good man. I, we don't you know, agree, obviously. He's a Sunday-keeping pastor, but he's a, he loves the Lord, loves the Bible, preaches some good Bible sermons. And we met years ago at, um, his program is one of the top 10 Christian programs in the world. Uh, we met several years ago at the Religious Broadcasters Convention and he came up and he said, you know, I watch your programs. I really preach it. You preach the word. It's very nice. And so we've met year after year. We visit a little bit. Very nice. He came to Sacramento and rented the Arco Arena earlier this year. I don't remember what the date was. And he sent us some tickets. So he worked with all the area Sunday pastors to get their churches together. It was kind of a non-denominational event and it was Friday evening. And I thought, oh, you know, free tickets, should I go? And I asked Karen and we prayed about it. We said, you know, we ought to go and we'll just shake hands and say hi if we can. And Anyway, so it was just to be a gospel presentation. We said we'd go. So we went and this is Arco Arena. You know, it's the biggest uh, basketball seating area in the Sacramento area. And... Um, we ended up getting floor seats right near the stage because we broadcast on the same station as Dr. Jeremiah, about four rows from the front. All the local sponsoring pastors were sitting in front of us because we're on KFI radio, so we sat there. Never told them we were coming, never said anything to them, just sat down front. Uh, first, then we realized they broke out the cameras and they're videotaping the whole thing. And I thought to Karen, I said, oh man, you know, here I am. I said... And I told Karen and, and Nathan, I said, now the music here might be a little rambunctious. I just, you know, that was one of my real concerns. Is, so we sat down, sure enough, they brought out the band. Very talented, but, you know, it wasn't our kind of music. And uh, so we're sitting there, and every time the camera went by with a boom, I kind of looked down. <laughs> I'm trying to be discreet. And then eventually, after the preliminaries and stuff, he finally comes out to present the message. And he looks down, and he looks at me. He says, friends, we have a special guest in the audience here tonight. <laughs> he said, Pastor Doug Batchelor of Amazing Facts is here. And he said, you know, he's on television more than Law and Order. <laughs> and he said, Doug, why don't you stand up? And I stand up. And all these Sunday keepers, I don't know if there was another Adventist in the building, they all clap. And they come up and they're asking Karen and I for pictures and autographs and they say, we watch your programs. And all the Sunday preachers turn around that are sitting in front of us. Brother Doug, we're so glad to see you here. We see you on television every week. They're watching. And they're listening. Anyway, I don't know why I went down that road. I, I forgot. Oh, I remember. I was, I was talking to you about the, one of the great flaws that I see is that a lot of our Sunday keeping friends are missing out because they don't read the Old Testament. Because, you know, if you're going to be a, a Christian where you use the whole Bible, I think you have no choice but to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. If you can understand the difference in the covenants, it's a slam dunk. It, it is so clear to me. Anyway, back to what I was reading here. So, the Old Testament is as verily the gospel in types and shadows as the New Testament in its unfolding power. The New Testament does not present a new religion. The Old Testament does not present a religion to be superseded by the new. 
The New Testament is only the advancement and unfolding of the old. Abel was a believer in Christ as verily and was as verily saved by his power as was Peter and Paul. Enoch was a representative of Christ as surely as was the beloved disciple John. That God who walked with Enoch was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the light of the world, uh, then just as he is now. The truth for this time is broad in its outlines, far-reaching, embracing many doctrines. But these doctrines are not detached items that mean little. They are united by golden threads forming a complete whole with Christ as the living center. Have you ever heard the expression, uh, they can't see the forest because the trees are in the way? Or a person can get so far down in the weeds they miss the big picture. You could be so close up to a tapestry all you see is thread. And that's the way it is with a lot of Christians. If you stand back and you look at the big picture, the panorama of the Bible, you're going to see Jesus all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Christ. Now, I'd like to quickly go through with you, and I've got to, I might might close with this other quote here. I'd like to quickly go through some examples. Let's take some Bible characters. and, And by the way, I'm working on a book right now. God willing, it'll be done this year. And it's talking about Christ and all the Bible. It's a quick summary of some of the Bible characters and stories and and the typology that you see in the Bible. First of all, when you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, after Paul making a number of analogies of Bible characters and how to apply them to the New Testament, I heard uh, Emmanuel Beck in just a moment ago, he's talking about clothing, representing righteousness. And by the way, let me make a little disclaimer here. Be careful when it comes to Bible types and symbols and typology that you don't start reading the the Bible so that you see just nothing really means what it says. You want the Bible to be read for its obvious history and its good theological study. But then sometimes take a picture when you stand back and say, do I see Christ in the story? But don't take every word in the Bible and say, ooh, I wonder what the hidden meaning of this is. Because you can get so you're, you know, you just overdo it. You know what I mean? There are clear Bible symbols that you can look at and you see them. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now all these things happened as examples and they are written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. The word for examples there is tupos in Greek or types. And he talks about the rock being Christ. And the children of Israel were baptized in the Red Sea. Red Sea, going down, represents baptism. And they were baptized in the fire, that pillar of fire. And they couldn't get to the promised land until they went through the water and they went through the fire. And there's a good spiritual written about that. And unless you are born, Jesus said, of the water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Our whole world was baptized by water back in Noah's day. It'll be baptized by fire when Jesus comes again and then he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And it talks about that Christ was the water that flowed out of the rock and Jesus is that bread that comes down from heaven. So you understand what these, some of these symbols are. All our hymn writers, or most of them, understood that and you'll see these symbols woven throughout our hymnal. Do we have to guess that Jesus is typified in Adam? No, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, 
who is a type of him who was to come. How could Adam be a type of Christ? I mean, after all, he fell. Well, but think about before his fall. Adam was made on the sixth day of the week. He was asleep until God breathed into him. Jesus, and by the way, Adam was naked when he was made. Jesus, the second Adam, became naked on the sixth day of the week, and he breathed his last. God opened up Adam's side and brought out his wife. On the cross, Jesus' side was opened, and out came the church and that blood and that water. It's interesting that Adam fell in a paradise and Jesus overcame in a burning wilderness. I mean, there's so many parallels there. I, I don't have time to go through them all, but if you look at Cain and Abel, Abel in particular, Abel is a good shepherd, isn't he? And why is Abel killed? The first murder is a good shepherd is killed. And he was the younger, killed by the older. It's interesting how often the younger in the Bible becomes the one who is the chosen line. And he's not killed because of his badness. He's killed because he's following God, because of his goodness. Why was Jesus, our good shepherd, killed by his own family? In the end of time, the battle between good and evil, it's going to be two groups that claim to worship the same God. One will be persecuting the other because of worship. Isn't that right? The mark of the beast and the seal of God. In back outside the gates of the garden, Cain and Abel both claimed to worship the same God, but they worshiped differently, and one persecuted the other. That's what's happening in the end of time. That whole gospel story is in there. By the way, the blood of Abel speaks to us today. Hebrews 12, 24. And Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You remember when the blood of Abel cried out to the Father, the blood of Jesus speaks to the Father. Then you go to Enoch. I'm going quickly. Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God. Jude tells us Enoch, the seventh from Adam, meaning the seventh generation, seven being a perfect number. Enoch walks with God. He has this wonderful relationship. Jesus walked with the Father. Enoch is a preacher of righteousness. Jesus was a preacher of righteousness. What did he preach? He said, the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his saints. Did Jesus preach that he was coming again with all the angels of heaven? Enoch goes up, he ascends. He's the first one who is translated. Jesus is the perfect one of the Father who is translated. Jumping down to Noah. Is Noah a type of Christ? All the world is saved through Noah. Anyone here not related to Noah? I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> We're all saved through the bloodline of Noah, aren't we? And Noah built an ark, and you had to be in that ark. And unless we are in Christ, we cannot be saved. That ark was beaten by a storm, but it survived. Jesus was beaten by a storm of persecution, and yet he survived. In the story of Abraham... And Isaac, many things we could say here. There's much more we could say about the other characters too. Especially in the story where Abraham gets that message from God and he says, take your son, your only son, the promised son, who you love, who by the way is the younger son, and he took him up on a mountain. They went three and a half days to the place of sacrifice. You notice they take a three days journey to the mountains, they leave the servants, they go up the mountain a half a day's journey, 
Christ, from the beginning of his ministry at his baptism, when he was anointed for his ministry, three and a half years, a day being a year in prophecy, to the place of sacrifice. By the way, almost the same spot, both uh, Mount Moriah was the same mountains where uh, Jesus died. It wasn't any one specific mountain, but they believe it was the spot where the temple was built. Christ died right across the valley from that on Calvary. And so, very same spot. And as they're going up the mountain together, the son says to the father, Isaac, we've got, says to Abraham, my father, we've got the, we've got the lamb, I'm sorry, we've got the fire, and we've got the wood, and the wood was placed on Isaac's back. Jesus went up the mountain with the wood on his back. And he said, but where is the lamb? This is a great, great statement. Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. Do you see the gospel in that story? And then when they get to the mountain, after Abraham is willing to make this incredible sacrifice of his son to follow God, to have faith in God, believing that God was able to raise him up as Jesus would be raised up. So then God stops Abraham and he directs him to a ram, which is a male lamb, that is caught by his horns in a thicket. And that word thicket there is a thorn bush. So here you've got a ram with a crown of thorns that takes the place. Again, a type of Christ. Jump down to Melchizedek. I've had a lot of interesting questions about Melchizedek, and some have wondered, was that actually Jesus? Well, no, he is a type of Jesus, but he was a real person. And you can understand that be also from the spirit of prophecy. Some people wonder if Melchizedek was uh, some kind of apparition or this was a Christophany, one of the examples where Jesus appears in the Old Testament because Paul says without genealogy, without beginning or end, Paul is just saying that there's no genealogy, meaning like Christ he is from everlasting to everlasting. He was a real person, but there's no genealogy listed. Well, there's no genealogy for several Old Testament characters. But there's no genealogy for Balaam, but he really lived. Some have wondered if Melchizedek was Shem. Do you realize that Shem was still alive? What person could be a high priest that would be superior to Abraham? And one theory, and I'm not endorsing this, I'm just telling you, the one theory was that after Abraham becomes settled, Shem, who was still worshiping the true God, he came and he moved into the country knowing that God had given that land to his people and he was a high priest. In any event, whether that's true or not, the point is that Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is a type of Christ. Who is our king of righteousness? It's Jesus. And following a battle with the enemy to liberate his son, his nephew Lot, Abraham returning, he pays tithe to Melchizedek, who comes out to greet them and brings them bread and wine. What does Jesus do to seal the covenant with his people? Isn't it through the bread and the grape juice? And he is our king of righteousness. And by the way, he's called the king of Salem. That place where he is the king of was later known as Jerusalem. And that means city of peace. Jesus is our king of righteousness of the new Jerusalem. So yes, Melchizedek is a very vivid type of Jesus. You can see Christ there. You can jump to Jacob. And I could talk about Isaac. Of course, I did already. He went up the mountain. He was that sacrifice. Let's talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. By the way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just one more symbol. All three of the patriarchs, um, 
they bring their wives out of Babylon or Mesopotamia into the promised land. Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, brings her from Babylon into the promised land. Isaac, his wife, is fetched by Eliezer from Mesopotamia to the promised land. And then Jacob goes back to Haran. He gets his wife from across the Euphrates, brings her back to the promised land. And then ultimately God's people are carried to Babylon in the Old Testament. God calls them under the high priest Joshua. What does Joshua mean in Greek? Jesus. Same name, right? Brings the people out into the promised land. And in the last days, God says, Babylon has fallen. Come out of her, my people. He wants us to come out of Babylon into the new Jerusalem, into the promised land. And so um, then you go on to Jacob really quickly. Jacob he is called the overcomer. All Israel is named after Jacob, the new name that he gets because he goes from being a deceiver to being a prince with God. We go from old name to new name. Doesn't God say he'll give us a new name? He becomes the patriarch of the 12 tribes. Jesus spawns the 12 apostles. And of course, you've got the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles in the New Jerusalem. There's much more I could say about Jacob. He anoints a rock isn't Christ the rock of ages? Isn't he the anointed? The word for Messiah in the Old Testament is the anointed. Christos or Christ in the New Testament is the anointed. Then go to Moses. Wow. We could spend a lot of time with Moses. Deuteronomy 18. Moses himself said. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet from among you. Like me. From your midst. From your brethren. Him you shall hear. That's when John the Baptist came along. They went to him and they said, are you Elijah? He said, no. They said, are you the prophet? They always said there was this nameless prophet that would come. Moses promised, are you that prophet? And that question arises several times in the New Testament. Who, who is this great prophet that Moses spoke about? It was Jesus. Look at the similarities between Moses and Jesus. By the way, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Remember, Moses lifted up that serpent on a pole and bid everybody look and live. Christ said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men. And it's through that look of faith to Christ dying for us on the cross, we are saved from the venom of sin like the children of Israel were after they were bitten by the serpents. We've all been bitten by the serpents. Amen? Amen. And it's through looking in faith. You remember the story in the Bible where the Amalekites attack the children of Israel from behind after they cross the Red Sea. And God tells Moses to go up on a mountain. And he said, lift your hands and intercede for the people. And so he prayed for the people. And while Joshua was fighting with the army against the Amalekites, as long as they could see out of the corner of their eye, Moses up on the hill interceding, they were victorious. But Moses' hands got tired. And eventually he put them down to rest and get the circulation back again. I remember in military school, one punishment was we had to stand like this. Any of you in the military, you had to do that? And you get where your arms just burn and you can't hold them up anymore. And he let his arms down and then all of a sudden the enemy began to get the victory. And he saw what was happening. He'd lift them back up again and they'd start to prevail. And then he'd go, oh, pretty soon Aaron and her held up his hands. The point being, as long as we can see Christ at the right hand of the Father, spreading out his hands, ever living to make intercession for us, through faith in that intercession... That he is there as our mediator. Christ is our mediator. It's like, you remember the old stoves where you had three settings? 
low, hot, and one in between. What was it called? Medium. Yeah. We're low. We've sinned. God is high. Jesus is the ladder that Jacob dreamed about reaching from heaven to earth. He is the mediator between God and man. He's our intercessor. God became a man in Christ. He is our perfect example. Like Moses. Interesting that Moses was born from among slaves. He had slave blood, but he never was a slave. Jesus was born from among men, but he never sinned. Water means multitudes of people. Moses was drawn from the water. Christ came from among the people to save the people. Oh, there's so many analogies. Let me see if I got time for a few more. Both Moses and Jesus were saved from death as infants. There was genocide against baby boys when Moses was born. The devil was trying to prevent the Messiah from coming. He also did that with the seed of David when Athaliah was queen. And he did it again during the time of Christ when Herod killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Interesting parallel. The Bible says that he grew up, even though he grew among the people of um, Pharaoh, he never was one of them. He wanted to redeem his own. He refused earthly wealth. You can read in Hebrews chapter 24. By faith Moses, when he came to age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Did the devil come and tempt Jesus with worldly wealth? All the kingdoms of the world I'll give you if you bow down. He turned his back on it because of the joy of saving you and me. It's interesting that Moses finds a woman at a well and ends up marrying her. And uh, Jesus meets a woman at a well and, uh, who has had six husbands. Well, she's got five husbands, one boyfriend, and Christ ends up becoming the seventh. Moses married one of those seven girls that came to the well. Moses is a great lawgiver. Jesus is a great lawgiver. Moses was a judge. Jesus was a judge. Moses had 70 elders and 12 tribes. Jesus had 12 apostles and 70 that he sent out. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights, as did Jesus and Elijah. Moses was a good shepherd. Jesus was a good shepherd. Bread came down from heaven during the time of Moses, as it did during the time of Jesus. And what shall I more say? For time would fail me. They both defeated the serpent. They came down from mountains to teach and to save. Moses was glowing on a mountaintop. Came down, he was so bright they couldn't look at him. Jesus was glowing on a mountaintop. The spirit of Moses. God said, I will take of the spirit that is on you and I will put it on them. Jesus, did he deliver his spirit to others? He breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Moses delivered the people from slavery and used his power to save them from bondage. Can Jesus save you from slavery and deliver you from the bondage of the devil? They both built a temple. Moses built one in the wilderness. Jesus said, destroy this temple made with hands. In three days, I'll make one without hands. You are the temple of God collectively. Not only is your body the temple, we are the temple of God. They were willing to forfeit their lives that God's people might be saved. Exodus 32, 32. Moses said, if you will now forgive their sin, if not, take my name from the book of life. 
that your people might be saved. Jesus said, not my will, thine be done. Both were resurrected. How do you think it is that Moses appears to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? You read in Jude verse 9, Michael came and raised Moses. Jesus is also resurrected. Oh, so much more. What about the parallels between Joseph and Jesus? Oh, there's so much there. Was Joseph sold by his brothers because of his badness or his goodness? Did he have a beloved relationship with the father? He was the youngest. Moses was the youngest. David was the youngest. And they take their brother Joseph and they throw him in a pit. Christ was put in a tomb. And they cover a robe with blood and they present it to their father. And to cover their sin, they present to their father a blood-stained robe. What is it that covers our sin? Isn't it the blood-stained robe of Jesus? The only thing Jesus left behind was a blood-stained robe. Joseph was beloved of the Father. Christ is the beloved of the Father. Uh, both are described as pious. Do you know there's no real sin recorded in the Bible of Joseph? They're both examples of purity. Yeah, Joseph's one of a couple of places you can point in the Bible of men who are not overcome by temptation that get the victory and you know of course there's Job and there's a few others there but uh, Christ got the victory was Joseph falsely accused false witnesses put him away false witnesses put Jesus away does Joseph forgive his brothers after all that he goes through because of their sin he freely forgives them and Jesus as he's being stretched upon the cross he prays father forgive them I, you and I can't even comprehend that they don't know what they're doing Joseph is sold for the price of a slave. Jesus is sold for silver and the price of a slave. Joseph goes to Egypt. Jesus goes to Egypt. And because of his going, uh, we are saved. Joseph tests his brethren with bread. Jesus tests us with the word of God. And there's a miracle with bread. Joseph's in prison. Oh, there's so much here. I don't have time for it. You know, about a third of Genesis is Joseph. A third of the book of Genesis is really dealing with Joseph. So you can't cover it all very quickly. I've got so much more here. Um, Joseph is in a prison. And while he's in that prison, there's one on the right and there's one on the left. And one is saved and one is lost. And he interprets their dreams. Jesus is flanked on the right and the left by one who is saved because he, he speaks out in faith and the other is lost. Jesus, interestingly enough, has a Joseph at his birth, his father, and he's got a Joseph at his death, Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a Joseph that has dreams connected with the birth of Christ, his father, Joseph. And, oh, so much more here, friends. You know what? In, I, just, I, I don't have time to read everything I really want to read, but I'd like to summarize something for you here. There's, you can go all the way. I just got, I'm not even out of Genesis. I mean, what shall I more say? If you go to Hebrews 11 and you talk about Gideon, you talk about Nehemiah and you talk about Ruth and you go through the stories of the kings and David and there are so many stories and Esther, so many stories of Christ in there. Somebody else wrote this. I've edited it a little bit. I took some creative license to it, but I thought it was good. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the lamb for sinners slain. 
In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, the star of Jacob. In Deuteronomy, the prophet, like unto Moses in the great rock. In Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he is the messenger of Jehovah. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer and faithful bridegroom. In Samuel, he is the great judge. That's in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, he's the princely king. In 1 King, he is David's choice. In 2 Kings, he is the holiest of all. In 1 Chronicles, he is the king by birth. In 2 Chronicles, the king by judgment. In Ezra, he is seen as the Lord of heaven and earth. In Nehemiah, he is the builder. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he's our daysman and our risen, returning redeemer. In Psalms, he is the son of God and the good shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the one above the sun. In the Song of Solomon, he is the great church lover, the one altogether lovely, the chiefest among 10,000. In Isaiah, he is the suffering and the glorified servant. In Jeremiah, he is the Lord our righteousness. In Lamentations, he is the man of sorrows. In Ezekiel, he is the glorious God. In Daniel, he is the stone and the Messiah. In Hosea, he is the risen son of God. In Joel, he is the poorer of the spirit. In Amos, he is the eternal Christ. In Obadiah, the forgiving Christ. In Jonah, he is the risen prophet. In Micah, he is the Bethlehemite. In Nahum, he is the bringer of good tidings. In Habakkuk, he is the Lord in his holy temple. In Zephaniah, he is the merciful Christ. In Haggai, the desire of all nations. In Zechariah, he's the branch. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, the servant. In Luke, the perfect son of man. In John, he is the son of God. In Acts, he is the ascended Lord. In Romans, he's the Lord, our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians, he's our resurrection. 2 Corinthians, our comforter. In Galatians, the end of the law. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. In Philippians, he's the supplier of every need. In Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead. 1 Thessalonians, he comes for his church. 2 Thessalonians, he comes with his church. 1 Timothy, he is the mediator. 2 Timothy, the bestower of crowns. In Titus, he's the great God and Savior. In Philemon, the prayer of crowns. In Hebrews, he's the rest of the faithful and the fulfiller of types. In James, he's the Lord drawing nigh. In Peter, the vicarious sufferer. In 2 Peter, the Lord of glory. In 1 John, he is the way. In 2 John, he is the truth. In 3 John, he is the life. In Jude, he is our security. In Revelation, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, the bright and morning star, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the alpha and omega from everlasting to everlasting, and so much more. Jesus is the Bible. If you want to get to know Christ better, friends, look for Jesus in everything you read. The gospel is in all these stories. They all testify of him. I'd like to just close this segment with you with prayer. Dear loving Father, Lord, it just stirs my heart, and I trust each of us when we see what a supernatural, spectacular book the Bible is, that it is just, we can never plumb the depths of the meaning and the message that is in its sacred pages. And I pray, Lord, that as we approach the great privilege of reading your holy word, that we'll do it in prayer, that we will be soldiers in your army. 
I pray that every time we open this book, that light will just blaze out of its pages into our hearts and souls. And I ask, Lord, that you'll bless the remainder of this conference, pour out your spirit, and help us to see Jesus and lift him up in all we say and do. In his name we pray, amen.